From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. And join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Hi, everyone. My name is Andy Vandenbush, and I am a law student at Loyola University Chicago School of Law and an associate editor of The Podvocate. Today, we're going to try things a little differently. Typically, on The Podvocate, we invite experts from the legal field to help us unpack legal issues that are important to us. Privacy experts unpack the need for protecting patient health information, or public defenders unmask the systemic challenges of the criminal justice system. Things like that. One thing that has always drawn me to the law are the stories behind the cases. As a former reading teacher, I can't help but admit that a good story gets me every time. In what I'm calling law school's greatest hits, I'm going to try to attempt to tell the story of a common case we read in law school with the help of a current law student. I'm joined today by Arthi Walker-Petticotla, a 3L in Loyola University Chicago School of Law's Weekend JD program. Artie is a former member of the Village Board of Oak Park. And if you wouldn't mind, Artie, would you mind sharing a little bit about like your background, your experience? I am a former village trustee for the Village of Oak Park. That is like our city council um, in most other places. And it's a part-time elected position. Uh, That was not my day job, though. I'm also, my day job used to be a director of engineering for a nonprofit tech company. I'm also a former microbiologist. I also am a community organizer. So I've had a lot of lives, I kind of like to say. And in my community organizing work, I focus on abolition of the prison industrial complex and abolition of the police. And I've also been able to co-organize and help to co-create and co-teach a class on abolition and movement lawyering here at Loyola. It's Law 156. It's offered in the spring semester. So that's my plug for it. That is great. I'm really grateful for you for your abolition work, especially with the police, um, because I think that's going to play a lot into kind of the stuff that we're talking about today. So as we described a little bit earlier in the episode, we're going to do things a little bit differently. We're going to talk a little bit about one of our primary cases that we hit in our doctrinal courses as law students, calling this segment Law School's Greatest Hits. And so we pick one of the one of the big ones. And our, our greatest hit today is going to be Lawrence versus Texas. I do want to clarify that this story will touch on potentially triggering material, things like homophobia, racism, possible police misconduct. Um, and we're just going to be exploring the case from the story. And we're going to touch briefly on the opinion. But I think it's important for us to first point out the fact that there were actually people attached to this. And I think their story needs to be told just as much as why this case was such a landmark and why it did the things that it did for American society today. Uh, The first thing I want to ask you is, what's your familiarity with Lawrence v. Texas? Can you dust off your brain a little bit? I know it's been a while since you've talked about it. Yeah, we did talk about this case in con law, right? But what I remember of this case is that it overturned a a sodomy law in Texas. 
and found that law unconstitutional, not on equal protection grounds, but on due process grounds. That's my little blurb of the case. <laughs> it overturned uh, it overturned this Texas law, but it not only overturned that, it also overturned this previous decision, which we're going to talk a little bit about. It's Bowers v. Hardwick. We're not going to jump into it the way that we do here, but I do want to touch on the similarities between the two. What you said is what we and, and law students know about Lawrence v. Texas. And then we know about some of the facts. A high course case summary is going to say, we would understand that two men, John Gettys Lawrence and Tyrone Garner, were arrested after the police received a report of a weapons disturbance at John's home by a neighbor. The police report that was written said that they did not find a weapon, but what they did see was John and Tyrone engaging in what they call, quote, deviant sexual behavior, which was in violation of the Texas statute at the time that forbid same-gendered sexual conduct. Do you think I'm missing anything? No, although I think that there's some, I'm in my reading, in prepping for this, I think there's some intriguing disputes about, did this thing actually happen? Right. I think it's a little bit messier than, than we want to think about. I feel especially when you bring it to a place like the Supreme Court, which is a hotbed for things like the systemic issues that we have, we downplay those things because we really want to get to the decision. The sources for our story today come from uh, Oye.org. A New Yorker article by Dahlia Lithwick entitled Extreme Makeover, the story behind the story of Lawrence v. Texas, the New York Times, the Houston Chronicle, and Dale Carpenter's book Flagrant Conduct. And this explores the history and the story behind this landmark decision. Without further ado, let's jump in. I'm going to start a little bit by talking about some of the players in this story. I want to talk mostly about John Lawrence and Tyrone Garner. And so we're going to start with John Gettys Lawrence. He was born in 1943 to a religious Southern Baptist family in Beaumont, Texas. He had two siblings, a brother named Charles and a sister named Mary Jane. And he was described as quiet and unassuming. He was remembered as not even really understanding his own identity as a gay person or uh, really his sexuality until he hit adulthood. And there's one funny anecdote that I found in my research that he was a Navy vet. And as he was applying for the Navy in the 50s, one of the questions asked about, you know, are you a homosexual? Do you know homosexuals? And, and he turned to his friend and he said, What's a homosexual? That tells us, if anything, the mindset and the upbringing of America in the South or even just kind of America in general. And it and says a lot about the military. I forgot to mention, yes, I served in the military for six years. And it says a lot about prior to Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which was seen as a like, landmark law that allowed, you know, quote unquote, people, LGBTQ people to serve. We literally won't talk about it. <laughs> yeah. So, Yeah. <laughs> But uh, after his time in the Navy, he moved to Houston, and he worked in the medical field as a technician. It doesn't mean his life was without any troubles. He was a heavy drinker. He had a history of multiple drunk driving convictions and was even convicted of murder by automobile in 1967. About a decade later, he moved to the outskirts of Houston, where he began exploring his identity as a gay person. He was known for not being very open about his sexuality, that kind of speaks to, I would say, that idea of like, you have your private life, your public life. And sometimes those things don't meet, especially in a time like that. So that's John Lawrence. And Tyrone Garner was born in 1967 to, to Baptist parents as well, but he was the youngest of 10 siblings. 
He was remembered as being sweet and effeminate and supported himself by washing dishes, cleaning houses. The things that we need to note here is that as an adult, he was he was known for not having a permanent address or reliable transportation. So he did a lot of moving around. He experienced a little bit of homelessness, but he did make do with what he had. And Tyrone was also in a long-term on-again, off-again relationship with his partner, Robert Eubanks, but that relationship was also very tumultuous. The thing about Tyrone's and Robert's relationship was that it involved, like I said, stints of homelessness and a lot of really vicious fighting. Robert also had a drinking problem that reportedly affected his relationship with Tyrone. And I think before we even kind of jump into that, if we just look at the lives of these two, three men, you know, there's a lot of baggage there. And so like before we even set the stage, we've already got all this stuff that we've got to unpack about what's going on here. And then, and then we actually have the events of what happened. And so it's just, we've got these men living in a time where being gay or just the LGBT community, like, isn't, isn't really a thing, or if Mm -hmm. it is a thing, it's a hidden thing. Mm -hmm. And, and then, you know, like I said, we have these other systemic issues at play. We've got homelessness, we've got alcoholism, we've got domestic violence. It's this perfect storm. It's just like ready to, to just explode before we've even started any of this. Yeah. And racism too. Yes. And racism. Yeah. Which is, there's there's a lot, which is, is going to play a a little bit of a role in that. I think too, if you get there and I think even probably in your own research, you've probably seen some of that. So what happened that night on September 17th, 1998, John Tyrone and Robert here's, here's another piece is that there's possibly this undisclosed fourth man that doesn't really get talked about. He doesn't show up really anywhere, but we're told that he's there and he exists, but we we don't have much more beyond that. They're all spending time in John's apartment in Harris County, Texas, just east of Houston. John and Robert, Tyrone's partner, had been longtime friends. So this would have been routine. This was, you know, one of those nights where, you know, you're hosting friends at your house and Robert brings his partner over and they they just have a night of drinking and 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 spending time together. As the night is going on, Robert and Tyrone don't have reliable transportation, so they prepare to spend the night at this apartment. And throughout the night, Robert is believing that John and Tyrone are flirting with each other. As we know about their relationship, this is upsetting to him and in his upset, he decides that he's going to leave the apartment. He's going to go buy a soda. Um, And he says, Oh, I got to get out of here. I'm going to go, I'm going to go buy something. I'm going to go to the store. But instead of going to the store, he goes to a payphone and he calls the police. This is where things start. So in his phone call, he claims in this report that there's either a robbery going on or a domestic argument going on at John's house. And he says, quote, there is a black guy with a gun going crazy, unquote to try and get those police there as quickly as possible. And within minutes, Harris County Sheriff's deputies are on the scene and they get there. Robert points in the direction of the apartment. They get into the apartment and this unknown uh, this unknown fourth guy points in another direction. And according to Sheriff's deputies at the time, that's when they walk in and they see John and Tyrone engaged in what they say deviate sexual activity. Those are really the facts of the case that we talk about and we know about with a little bit added to it. The first deputy to arrive is this man known as Joseph Quinn. And from, uh, I don't know a lot about 
policing or like what the rules are when the police show up somewhere. But according to my research, John Quinn shows up and being the first one there, he has a lot of broad authority in the way that he can decide this is going to play out. He can decide if he arrests somebody, he can decide charges. So he gets there and as the reports show, he says that he sees these men engaged in sexual activity. This is corroborated by one other deputy. The problem with that is these two deputies have conflicting reports about what happens when they actually walk into the apartment. So John Quinn comes in and says he sees them doing it. They stop. They look at him. And that's when things go crazy. This other deputy says they walk in and they just kind of continue what they're doing. And so I don't know if that throws red flags to you, even yeah. being as unbiased as possible. I, I can't. I don't know. I mean, th- it, this is a notably a thing among police is there's always a story issue of like, whose story do you believe? And we know that the police lie. That's not a, a, a bad thing to say. The police have been known to lie. I mean, look at Breonna Taylor's case. The police lied to get the search warrant um, to go into and ram down Breonna Taylor's home. And now that police officer is under investigation and is being charged in court. It's not an uncommon thing. And, and just even that, like, I mean, those are the parallels there. Those are things that are still happening today. You you come in on a gun charge or you come in on a weapons charge, there's no weapon. And then it's, it's almost uh, frightening to see the, the two, the way that those things parallel even 20 Mm -hmm. years between each other. Mm -hmm. So there, there end up being four deputies that show up on, on the scene. The other two say that they did not see the two men engaged in sexual conduct. So we have three stories among four deputies and it it really is you know who do we believe and at the same time we also have these two men do we listen to their story either you know that's that's kind of what's at play here and so like i said you know quinn has broad authority on the way that he kind of runs this i guess we could we could call it an operation he has broad authority in deciding on the charges for what's going to happen here because they don't find a weapon. There is no weapon there. But because there are two men that he is saying are engaged in sexual conduct with one another, he thinks about the anti-sodomy laws. So he's saying we can arrest them on that. But before he does that, he makes a call to the to the assistant district attorney to make sure that this law applies to conduct that happens within someone's home. I just have to pause there for a minute because it just makes me go, you have to ask that? Is that a thing that you got to do? I mean, it it also shows like the hesitation in that moment of, is this something I can actually arrest people for? I think to me, it shows one of the important things about Lawrence that I think isn't talked about in law school is that it shows that the very fact of criminalizing something puts a huge amount of people at risk, right? And in this case, puts LGBTQ people at risk of engaging and interacting with the prison industrial complex and the police in a way that they don't want to. But perhaps maybe in Lawrence, and I don't know if this is what you're gonna get to Andy, but maybe this is the outcome that those, that gay rights activists wanted at that time, because I know that they wanted you know, the current laws to be challenged at that time. So this is the, like the weird, the weirdness around Lawrence is like, is this something that in, in my reading, is this something that 
civil rights and gay rights advocates wanted to happen mm-hmm. with this case, and they were looking for the right case to challenge the laws. And and so there's just a lot of weirdness for me around that whole thing, because I found this law review article that's like, did this even happen? <laughs> you know, you are a mind reader, because we are going to jump in on that a little bit. You bring up such a good point too. this idea that the thing about laws is that it is a group of people saying that there are these things that tell us that they warrant things like jail time. They warrant things like fines. And sometimes, I mean, in this case, you know, the anti-sodomy laws, these are things that in some cases, you know, LGBT people don't necessarily have a choice over what ways they choose to kind of express themselves. And there is a law on the books that literally says that is a thing that requires you to get arrested, possibly jailed and possibly fined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it impacts people like laws like that impact people to this day, because we know, we know that queer people are more likely to be unhoused, are more likely to have difficulty finding work. So we know that these laws are still impacting people. And I think that the important thing is the criminalization of an act, which is sex between, you know, two gay people is actually the criminalization of people. Like that's the right. important thing that people need to understand. When we're criminalizing an act, we are criminalizing people. And that's literally what our legal system does. The idea of abolition of abolition and movement lawyering, I mean, it's it's stuff like that. I, and I think that's that's kind of my my point in just telling the story is that there are people that are being affected by this. This is not just mm-hmm. two people broke a law that everybody decided was bad. It's just like there were two people that experienced what we could argue is a trauma right now. And the the facts are flying around and they are blurry. Absolutely. Um, and I think one of the other things to think about is how many people were caught up by this law pre-Lawrence. So how many people were arrested, prosecuted, and just accepted that guilty plea because they didn't want to be harassed any further? How many people were caught up pre-Lawrence? And those numbers are really hard to find, I think, mm-hmm. because you know, a lot of people didn't want to admit openly that they were gay and they identified as gay. So it's, it's like, you know, there's just so much history that goes into these cases that I feel like law school does a disservice on because we don't talk about sometimes a lot of times, actually the real impact on human lives that these cases represent. Right. And that that even makes my brain want to jump a little bit of ahead into kind of the oral arguments that happen in front of SCOTUS, Texas's argument for defending the law just based on their on their scrutiny standards. So, you know, going back to the case and talking, I want to talk a little bit about the law itself. So this Texas anti-sodomy statute was known as the homosexual conduct law, and it made it a class C misdemeanor if an individual, quote, engaged in sexual deviate intercourse with another individual of the same sex. The thing about this law was that this was a revision from 1973, where before that, pre-1973, this law was just banning sodomy, period. And in 1973, they brought up a revision that said, we just want this to be same-sex sodomy. So again, that almost tells you that I, I would argue that there's a bias there, that that there is an act that when certain people perform it, we don't want to have anything to do with it. That's that's just where my mind goes with that. 
Texas is not the only place that this happened. It, it was in so many other places, but this is this was the one that jumped in front of our faces. It's always got to be Texas or Florida. It's, everything's <laughs> bigger in Texas. So, you know, <laughs> so, so when Quinn arrests and files the reports, he charges both of these men with being, quote, engaged in deviant sexual conduct with another man. He gets a little bit explicit, I think, as a way to justify this decision. But I think for radio's sake, I'm not going to to get into that. But just to even say that, you know, that shows up in a police report to say that, that, you know, these men were breaking the law. And I just want you to know it for sure. So the two men are held in jail overnight. They plead not guilty to homosexual conduct, and they're later released the next night. One thing that I want to note is in interviews post SCOTUS, both Tyrone and John have explained that not only were they not engaged in sexual conduct at that night, but they also say that they were in separate rooms and both clothed at the time. So that's a thing that we want to keep in the back of our minds. Um, uh, Unfortunately, we can't, you know, we can't pick their brains because both of them passed away. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, to even have that idea playing out too, like that, that possibility there makes Mm -hmm. it a little bit, it it plays with you a little bit, I think. And then what happened to Robert Eubanks? He admitted to making a false police report. He pleaded no contest. He was sentenced to 30 days in jail and he was released early. And that's all we know about Robert Eubanks and the the fire starter for all of this. If if we really want to, we really want to get there. So what happened after that? Then the court cases that follow, they mirror already exactly what you were getting at, this idea that we've got Lambda Legal that ends up taking these cases for appeal. Lambda Legal, for those of us that are unfamiliar with them, they are an LGBTQ-focused legal defense and civil rights organization. And so what they wanted to do was they wanted to provide these two men upper crust legal assistance while also being able to address an issue that they had on their agenda as well. So it was almost kind of like a perfect tit for tat for them. They they were able to defend these men that were, they believed, unjustly harmed by this law, and they get to do something about it. And they're hoping that it's, that it's going to reach where it eventually goes, which is the Supreme Court. So Lambda Legal was not looking at this case as a way to exonerate these two men, however. They were looking at this as a way to combat the homosexual stigma which was on the minds of many people, especially many Texans at the time, through fighting the unconstitutionality of laws like the homosexual conduct law. This comes at a price. When you're looking for a very specific outcome, you need your players to act in a very specific way. What ends up happening is they ask John and Tyrone to make very specific concessions to the way that that these appeals are going to play out. So the first thing they, they ask them to do is, in all of these appeals, they need to plead no contest. Why do you think they should plead no contest? I feel like that's a trick question. <laughs> it's it's not a trick question. But if we think about it this way, if you plead not guilty, you are saying everything that's happened didn't happen. It happened, yeah. And so if they plead no contest, they're not saying it happened, but they're saying we're going to let Lambda set up the, set the stage for however they want to do it. And as long as they get us off, we're good. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the concessions they have to make. And then do I was you know saying, what they wanted to do at so, any point in your research? Like so, how you come across like this is what they really wanted from from their lawyers. In the research that I found, the the closest thing that I could find about John Lawrence was that 
he was just more PO'd about the fact that the police entered his home without a yeah. warrant and, you know, they were invading his privacy. He, mm-hmm. he was, that was the thing that really was bugging him. Mm-hmm. I did not see anything beyond that. Also, you know, he really, he was not asking to be a face of LGBT rights. He felt like he was wronged. This just happened to fall into the laps of Lambda. He was just saying, okay, I guess if this is the price I have to pay to get to get my penance, then I'm going to do it. Mm. Um, I don't know. I have not found anything about Tyrone Garner, though. I don't know what he felt. Really interesting. I think like it's another unspoken sort of part of the law of how does actually working your way through the legal system and through the appeals process and all the way to becoming a not a person who's known as being a person, but a case. Right. How does that impact you then as a person? You right. Know, is that what you really wanted? And, and you know, I didn't even think about that, but just also this idea of it, it's almost like this devil's sign on the dotted line thing that, hey, you're going to get really good representation, but you have to do these things for us. Yeah. And yeah. that I didn't even think about that. I think it, it speaks to the fact that in our legal system, you do have to give up autonomy um, in terms of sometimes what it is you really want. And does that mean that our legal system is actually a fair system? I mean, right. it comes up a lot when we talk about, this is why I think a lot of lawyers have a problem with abolition, because it's like, well, no, this legal system provides justice. We are getting people the representation in their day in court. And it's like, but does it really provide justice? Is it really giving that person an empowered and autonomous way to figure out for themselves what it is they want in this situation. And abolitionists would argue no. The New Yorker article actually puts it in a really eloquent way where they, where they say that Lawrence and Garner understood that they were being asked to keep the dirty secret that there was no dirty secret. And I think that that plays right into that. That's this idea that in order to get the justice that they were seeking, they had to play this role they had to they had to fall in line even still with these rules that don't even necessarily play in they had a difficult choice also we're talking when i say they i'm talking about lambda legal in choosing their attorney for the case because again we're in the early 90s we have we're in texas and they also want to argue this they want to take this gay rights stance but they need to be very, very picky about the lawyers that they choose. And so they eventually decide on this man named Paul Smith, and they choose him for a couple of reasons. The first is they want him to kind of be on the front lines because he is, as they described, gay, but not too gay. And then also that he was a legal professional that had a lot of clout, but his career was not built on fighting for gay rights. Again, we're jumping right into this societal listen, we want you to accept this and we understand that you're uncomfortable. And it's almost like, does that make it right though? And then the last concession that uh, John and Tyrone were asked to make was that they had to turn down any media appearances. And this was also, this played into their no contest idea that, um, you know, we're keeping all the facts under wraps. We're holding them as close to our chest as possible. That way we can set the story the way that we want it to and we need it to so that it can impress the people that it needs to impress. I found that fact really interesting when I was reading over the articles of, of the fact that they were they refused to do media interviews throughout the appeals process. 
And I don't know if that's a normal thing, especially in high profile cases like this. Maybe the attorneys are the ones that usually speak on behalf of their clients. But I found that part really interesting. And I think it was a way of controlling, as you were saying, the message and, you know, to ensure that the case actually went all the way to the Supreme Court. And then at the same time, we can play this these little like uh, logistic gymnastics that like nobody's lying, but we are we're only telling you the stuff that's really important. And there's there's another really funny anecdote that I pulled out of my research uh, related to Sandra Day O'Connor, who once we start talking about that opinion is was one of the swing boats. She was the people. She was one of the people that that they knew they needed to convince. And according to the story, the day of there was a person in the audience at at the at the hearing who went to Paul Smith, the lawyer, and he said, "I just want to let you know." Sandra Day O'Connor just recently sent a baby gift to her former law clerk who has a same-sex partner. So you should be okay. And so setting up this, this whole idea of not talking about how it was a night of debauchery and there was a man that was jealous and all of this and saying like, listen, we have two men that were consensually like engaging in things that people in relationships do. Why is this a problem? It's genius and it's also really sinister. It's sort of, uh, to me, it comes across as um, respectability politics. Like yes. you're trying to you're trying to gain acceptance into the legal system by showing the most respectable side of an oppressed class of people that you can show, and that is literally white supremacy in action, right? Like right. that that is what people of color, what oppressed people have always had to do is to assimilate or find some way to be accepted by the ruling class. That was the thing that came to my mind too, was this idea of respectability politics. How can you pass off as normal, as most normal, so that you can get these upper crust people to accept that, oh, this is part of my normal yep. worldview. Yeah, and, and it makes me question the strength then of Lawrence to withstand, like, will Lawrence actually hold in a court that we have right now, <laughs> you know? Right. Is is the respectability politics argument and the, and that LGBTQ people are just do the same things as a you know heterosexual couple? Is that really going to be enough to hold in a six three very conservative court? Even if we we look to Dobbs, there there's mentioning by Justice Thomas himself that says we need to reexamine all of our due process stuff and except and for as the interracial marriage except. <laughs> Except for loving, uh, but but this this Lawrence v. Texas was one of those cases. They said we need to reexamine it, and um, you know it, it also makes you wonder what might be the argument from from that side that like this is this isn't a thing anymore. We don't need to worry about it. When again, we are jumping into all of this intersectionality that in in a few minutes maybe we'll talk about it. But yeah, it's just it's just all of it. It gets so messy and so complicated. And, you know, in the end, here we go. The the opinion, the thing that we all know about is that it was decided, the opinion was written by Justice Kennedy, where he led the charge in saying that this was not necessarily an equal protection issue, but that this was a due process issue. And he argued that there was a cultural shift going on in the world, and there were certain personal liberties that the government had no right intruding upon. And this, this specific phrase was the thing that helped this case also overturned Bowers v. Hardwick. The thing about Bowers v. Hardwick, I want to talk just briefly about it, is Bowers v. Hardwick, there was a law in the books that said anti-sodomy. And that law was for everyone. It was almost like that pre-Texas law. And 
the simple facts of the case is that a police officer saw a man engaging in sodomy with another man in his home, came in, arrested him, and he was charged with this anti-sodomy. And the Supreme Court actually decided that this law was just because it affected everybody. It wasn't just one group of people like this Texas law was, which also plays into Justice O'Connor's concurring opinion and then dissenting in part two. Mm -hmm. So we've got that. And she said that for that exact reason, Bowers should be upheld because it affects everybody. Yeah. This is not a good law because it equal opportunity oppression is good. <laughs> right. Right. I imagine she put it, she took out like her little rainbow flag and like put it on her desk and was like, I'm doing a good thing for these people. That's the case there. Um, like I was saying, John Lawrence passed away, unfortunately, in 2011 due to a heart condition. He was 68 years old. And Tyrone Gardner passed away in 2006 due uh, to complications to meningitis. And he was 39. But these are two people had no intention of being the leaders of the gay rights movement helped set a stage for, you know, things like Obergefell, things for even being referenced in Dobbs today. But that's that's kind of where we are now. I did want to ask you this same question that you kind of brought up earlier is that, you know, we've got this case. Here we are 20 years later. It was it was decided on in 2003. Here we are in 2022. Is this a case that is still important now? I mean, I think I think like all Supreme Court cases, Lawrence to me speaks to the power of a political identity, right? Queerness, LGBTQ is a political identity as much as it is a personal identity. And to me, and I think Angela Davis has said something uh, very similar to this, is that queerness is a criticism of the status quo. Like it's a, it's a collective movement and it's also a criticism of current, your current living conditions and, and, and just the current world. And Angela Davis, um, I can't remember if it was in a speech or one of her books, mentioned something along the lines of the trans community has actually taught us how to challenge the gender binary. And they, in, in that teaching, what they're showing us is how to reimagine our world, which abolitionists are asking us to do with the prison industrial complex. So by supporting Lawrence and by supporting the outcome in Lawrence, which is an important outcome. I'm not going to argue that Lawrence is not an important outcome. It is absolutely an important outcome that needs to be upheld. But we need to go further than that because we cannot just, I mean, as a, the Dobbs decision has shown us, we cannot just rest on Lawrence and say we're done. We can't rest on that and say we're done. Right. I think even a lot, a lot of this push for, you know, even things like anti-CRT or if we're looking at kind of what's going on in Florida with education, this whole idea of like, we can't indoctrinate our children when we're talking about LGBT issues and it needs to be age appropriate. Andy, like you are a former teacher, right? And I have kids that are from 20 years old to eight. That is just complete whatever you right. want to say, right. right? Like I can't say, I can't say it because it's going to be on public right. radio, but I think you and I would both agree that teaching children, especially young children, this idea that you actually have the ability to say, these are my pronouns and this is my gender identity. And that doesn't mean that you are stuck in that gender identity. It's fluid. And I've taught my kids this in my eight-year-old, like they go to a school where there's like, yeah, that person's pronoun is they. And 
they changed their name last week and it's fine and they're fine with it. And why is it that adults make such a big deal out of this stuff? I think because we want to always find new ways to oppress people in this country because racial capitalism, white supremacy, all of the things, we pick on an identity and a group of people that we feel like we can control. I think like the thing I want to say here is that the legal system is not going to be the thing that saves us. The legal system, and this is why police abolition and prison abolition is so important, because the laws that are being enacted in these states are the same laws that were ultimately struck down in Lawrence, right? They're the same type of laws that were ultimately struck down in Lawrence. And these laws can be resurrected again, which is what's happening right now. So the legal system isn't going to be the path to liberation for oppressed people. It's really going to be community organizing and creating new structures of safety and everything that PIC abolitionists have been fighting for. Artie, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it. I think, you know, even in a way that I wasn't even expecting, like I knew I just wanted to do this because I was like, hey, let's talk about like a case and let's make it fun. But this, it opened up a discussion about so many things that we are dealing with even today. We, We sometimes kind of take for granted almost, like especially here, we are living in a particularly liberal city where mm-hmm. these issues we would we would hear that and we would go are you kidding you would arrest somebody for that Pfft, come on but not even just using gayness as as the issue but also looking at again i keep coming back to like the intersectionality of all of this if it's one identity it may be going to hit another and and if it hits that other identity i i'm sure there's probably another identity that's going to get affected by that too mm-hmm. so I really thank you for your time. I thank you for your insight as an abolitionist, as a colleague of mine. I really do appreciate it. This has been a joy, Andy. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our editors-in-chief are Christy Paredes and Marissa Polowitz. Our associate editors are Neka Ugu, Marcus McNeil, Andy Vandenbush, and Casey Callahan. Special thanks to Professor John Dane and Dean Stephen Russian for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.